inside out in every respect. I have gone this from this morning as a tenor <clears throat> to a bass tonight. So uh, I hope that uh, you can follow me as a bass because I'm not usually this way. Uh, I don't know if it's keeping Margot the Wonder Bulldog or what that's doing this to me, but something is, and uh, I just keep trying to, uh, to overcome it <laughs> and hopefully will uh, before too much longer. Tonight we come to uh, look seriously at the first phrase in the Apostles' Creed. Is it going to put up there? Yeah. Uh, and that is, uh, we've looked at, I believe, what it means to have faith, what it means to believe. And tonight we're going to look at the first phrase there, and I, I hope you can read it. Don't worry about uh, it. It's up there. I think they can see enough of it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Just that first line I want us to look at for a few moments tonight. Now, uh, some people are asking, I think, I think we're going to, Maybe next Sunday night we can play uh, Rich Mullins' song, Creed. Uh, everybody wants to hear that or have it played while we're looking at this. So while uh, we may not be ready to sing it yet, maybe we can play it next Sunday night and uh, have that as a part of our service. I've listened to it a couple of times. It is good, and it kind of reinforces my view that we started out with in the first sermon on this series that much of our creeds today, don't worry about it, much of our creeds today are sung. We sing what we believe. So that's the reason our music, we have to be very careful to analyze it and scrutinize it and be, be very careful that what we sing reflects what we really do believe. Because quite honestly, people who come in here and sit as visitors on Sunday morning will probably hear more and, and understand more or, or determine more of what we believe by what we sing than by what I say from the pulpit because it's more concise, it's more pithy, if you will, and it just kind of comes together in that song form, and so people will do that. Uh, I really want them to understand what we believe by what I preach, but that's, uh, I hope that happens ultimately and completely, but it doesn't always happen immediately uh, in a lot of people's lives. Tonight, I want you to turn with me, first of all, to, to Psalm 93. As we look at this phrase from the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And I'm reading this just as an example of other things we'll look at tonight, and I don't really, since I don't really have a text to look at, I'll refer to this down in the second point, but I want you to hear what the psalmist says. And this is uh, just a, an example of several psalms that we'll mention tonight that, that talk like this. Verse 1, the Lord reigns. That is an emphatic statement. The Lord reigns. Not the Lord hopes to reign, the Lord might reign, the Lord uh, uh, will someday perhaps reign, but the psalmist says, even right now, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established, it will not be moved. It's firmly established and will not be moved, not because the world is great, but because God reigns. God is in control. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters, 
than the mighty breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. That is what you say will prove to be absolutely true. Your testimonies are confirmed. What you say, God, is truth. There is no equivocation about that. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. So the psalmist here is expressing in Psalm 95, or excuse me, 93, what the writers of the Apostles' Creed are beginning to unfold for us in, in that very first phrase. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Now, there are three things I want you to see out of this particular phrase out of the Apostles' Creed, and then we'll be done. First of all, I want you to see, I believe in God. Not just any God, because not just any old God will do. Now, we live in a day that says just any old God will do. If you want to believe in the God of Islam, that's good. Have faith. If you want to believe in the God of Judaism, that's good. Have faith. If you want to, strangely, why anybody would, I don't know, believe in the God of Christianity, the world would say, then go ahead and believe in it. That's okay. But, but the truth of the matter is, we live in a day when we must proclaim and we must earnestly state that I believe in God is not just any old God. I believe in God is the Christian God. It's the God that's revealed in Jesus Christ. It's the God that, as the, as the creed will go on and tell us later, is the creator of all there is, the maker of heaven and earth. We'll talk about that next week. But, but it's not just any old God. Now, we in our day tend to think that atheism is the real enemy of Christianity. As a matter of fact, we've talked about this in the past. There is a rise of the new atheism that's sweeping across the world and across our nation. You've got the Hitchens and you've got the, uh, uh, the Richard Dawkins and you've got these guys who are, are talking about, you know, that God doesn't exist and they don't believe in God. First of all, I want you to understand that when they say, I don't believe in God, that's just as much a statement of faith as when we say, I believe in God. It's just as much a statement of faith. It's not based on uh, absolute proof. It's not based on something that they have scientifically determined. But they're saying that I, I have put, I've staked my life and I place my faith in the proposition that God does not exist. Now, I want you to understand, there's no way to either prove that God exists or does not exist empirically. There's no way for us to put God in a test tube or in, a, in an observation box and say, okay, let's see and let's prove <clears throat> that God exists. You can't do that. I believe that it was Tennyson that said, that which is worth proving is unprovable. That which is worth knowing is unprovable because God is not provable or disprovable. To believe in him or not to believe in him is at the same time a statement of faith. But do you know the scripture quite honestly, never views atheism as the ultimate enemy of God? Isn't that amazing? There's only really one statement in there that, that you find in, in Psalms where it says, the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. But in reality, I don't even think the psalmist there is talking about what we would talk about today as being atheism. I think he's talking about a practical atheism. If you read that whole psalm, he's talking about a person who lives as though God doesn't exist, who lives as though God doesn't matter, who puts their trust in other things rather than in the true God, the true and the living God. 
No, in Scripture, there's, there's not a whole lot of talk about atheism. There's a whole lot of talk about paganism. Paganism being the belief in, the following after, the worshiping of idols. And, and so the Scripture talks a lot about paganism, talks a lot about idolatry and idol worship, worshiping idols and false gods. As J.I. Packer said, false gods, whether they are metal or mental. I like that statement. Whether they are metal, that is crafted out of stone or wood or metal or, or stones or, or jewels or whatever, or whether they're mental. Many a times, the idols of our day are, are not things you set on a shelf and bow down to three times a day and, and say some kind of prayer to. We don't have that kind of idolatry, do we? But many times, they're idols of the mind and idols of the heart whereby we live as though God is not the true and the living God, and we live as though we are, we are worshiping something else, something other than. As a matter of fact, a lot of times when people say, I believe in God sitting in Christian churches every day, when, when I'm through describing God today, they, if they're honest, they'll say, oh, I believe in God, but not that God. Because that God is, is too almighty. That God is too sovereign. That God is too powerful. What I really want is a domesticated God. I want a God who is, well, quite honestly, a God who's like my son's French bulldog that we're keeping. You know, he's, he's, he's pretty strong, or she's pretty strong, and she can pull Retta around the yard anywhere she wants to take her, but she's, you know, she's domesticated. She's housebroken. Uh, she gets along well with, with what we want to do when we leave to come to church. We say, Margot, go to your crate. And I rattle a treat pack, and she shoots into her crate. I give her the treat, close the door, and that's it. And that's kind of the way we want God. We want a God who is strong enough to, to do some things that we can't do. We want God who's strong enough to accomplish some things that we can't accomplish, but we don't want him too strong. We don't want him too powerful. We don't want him too sovereign. We want to be able to say to God, when it's convenient, now, God, go get in your crate and let us take care of this. Let us do what we want to do. Don't interfere with what we're wanting to do right now. That is idolatry. When you worship God in a way that is not like the true and the living God, when you draw him down, when you reduce him, when you try to domesticate him, you cannot worship the true and the living God ever. Now, I got to tell you, this God that we talk about, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, is a God that's not real popular in America today. He's really not. I, I watch shows that I like on TV, and, and, and they make a lot of sense in a lot of ways. But they talk about God, but they're not talking about the God that is the God of the Bible. They're talking about a domesticated God. They're talking about one that is mentally, in their mind, in their heart, something other than what the Scripture talks about. So understand when it says, I believe in God, it's talking about the God that is revealed in Jesus Christ, uh, He's the the, the Creed is talking about the God who is God and who is not answerable to us for anything. Who is something of a, I hate to use this word, but it's, it's, it's an adequate word, something of a wild God, not a domesticated God. I love in one of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, I don't know if you've ever, ever heard this or not, I've probably used this before and you've probably seen it, but I think it's in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lucy and talking to Mr. and Ms. Beaver, they're talking about Aslan, the great lion, who is the Christ figure in the story. And they're, they're talking about it. And Lucy gets very concerned. And she said, oh, he's a lion. 
Well, is he safe? And, and Mr. Beaver or Ms. Beaver 1, I can't remember which one, said, is he safe? Heavens, no, he's not safe. But he's good. And that's the way our God is. Our God is not a safe God. Our God is a, a mighty God, a powerful God who rules and reigns, as the psalmist says, over everything there is, over the waves of the sea, over the storms of the air, over the earthquakes and over the wars and everything else that exists. He is a God that reigns. He's not safe, but he's good, as we'll talk about in just a minute. So we see that the God that the creed is talking about is the God revealed in Scripture, not a, not a God that we have come up of our own device, to th to a God that we can like, a God that can be comfortable, that we can be comfortable with, but is the true and the living God as revealed in the Scriptures and in Jesus Christ. Second thing I want you to see is the name. Now, it's interesting, in the creed, it talks about the name of God as the Father. I believe in God, the Father. Now, that is a strange thing. I want you to understand, when, uh, in the early church, when this type of teaching began to circulate and Jesus is who started it by referring to God as father and then by telling us to and he told us in the Lord's prayer which we looked at uh, a year or so ago he said in that prayer he said when you pray pray this way our father who is in heaven our father who is in heaven that was an alien thought to the Jews of Jesus day that was an alien thought to any of the religions that were prevalent in Jesus' day. To talk about God as Father in a, in a family relationship with God was an unusual thing. Uh, uh, Paul shows that when he goes to Mars Hill, to Athens. When he gets there and, and there all the, the Epicureans and, and all the others are debating various philosophical points and he comes talking about this God who is who is Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead. And, and then he says, you know, he is our father. He's the father. And, and they couldn't understand that. They couldn't understand a resurrected God. They couldn't understand a God who could die and then be raised in Jesus, as Jesus was. But they could not understand the concept of father. If you look at the scripture, you find that in one sense, God's proper name is Yahweh or has been more commonly used, Jehovah. But Yahweh is the one I think that is most preferable. And that's how he was revealed to Moses in, in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses saw the burning bush. And he, and he heard from the bush the voice of God saying, go and, and lead my people out of Egypt. Go and lead them out of slavery. And Moses said, well, God, who shall I say sent me? And the voice comes out and says, you tell them that I am that I am has sent you. I am has sent you. That I am is Yahweh. And that is a proper name proclaimed to Moses to be proclaimed to all the people. And he does that not just by that phraseology. You know, we think, okay, I am. That's a strange thing. Uh, you go in and say, well, I am sent me. Well, who is I am? You almost feel like it's an Abbott and Costello routine, you know, who's on first. Uh, I am sent me. Well, who is I am? I am sent me. And you said yourself, no, I am sent me. It just is nonsensical to our way of thinking unless we understand that the meaning behind that is I am for all eternity. 
I am for all time. I am before anything was. I have no beginning. I have no creation. I have always been. I am has sent you. But, but he said you're to proclaim that not only in the word, but you're to proclaim that, Moses, by talking about uh, some of his moral character, by delineating the moral character of God. If you look in Exodus chapter 34, if you don't have time to turn there, just jot it down and read it later, but listen to it carefully. This is what, after, the, after Moses has come back down from the mountain, and he has seen the golden calf, and he's taken the tablets, and he's crashed them against the rock, and they have been destroyed. And he goes back up to meet with God again, and God replaces those tablets. Moses has to cut them out. Moses has to prepare them. God did it before. But this is what he says. This is what it says in, in verses 6 through, uh, uh, six through 8, or, or excuse me, 5 through 7. I'll get it right in a minute. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, that is with Moses, as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, or abounding in grace and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. I mean, there God says to Moses, here is what my character is. And in that character, he reveals not only who he is, but he reveals his nature and his role. I am a forgiving God. I am a patient God. I am a long-suffering God. But I saw the role of judge, and I will judge. I will not let the guilty go unpunished. And unless we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, unless we have that relationship with God through Jesus Christ, unless we know this God who is the great I am, then we do not understand who God really is, as spoken of in the creed. His nature and his role are established in Exodus 34. Then Jesus says to his disciples, as he was about to leave them in that in that what we call the Great Commission, Jesus never called it that, but it is a Great Commission. It's a great command. It's a great or, marching orders for the church of God. But Jesus told his disciples, when they go forth, when they go out, to baptize men and women in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now that's an interesting statement there. Please note very carefully, Jesus says, baptize them in the name not the names. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three persons together constitute the one true and the living God. There is unity in the Trinity. There is triunity in God's nature. And we must see that as a part of who he is in understanding who I believe in God the Father. He's the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is Father of those who come to him by faith and are adopted into his family. The whole concept of Father, the name that was not understood until the gospel came along. The name that was not understood by multitude upon multitude until the gospel was proclaimed. Until Jesus lived it and taught it right here on this earth. 
So I believe in God, not just any God, the Christian God. I believe in God the Father, Yahweh, the one who is the creator of all things, we'll find out next week. But there's another adjective, descriptive word in there. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Almighty. Now that's where a lot of people really get their what's the old phrase their knickers in a knot or whatever they really chafe at that word almighty they really don't want an almighty God they really want that domesticated God and an almighty God is not cannot and never will be domesticated what does almighty mean well, in, in a word or in a, in a sentence it means that he can and he will do all that he intends. Period. That he can and he will do all that he intends to do. In that is wrapped up the concept of sovereignty and the concept of omnipotence. Omnipotence is a word that means all-powerful. All-powerful, not powerful with limits, not powerful if he can on some occasion, but omnipotent, all-powerful, all the time, all places, no matter what. He is a God who is all-powerful. Now, that's questioned by everybody from Rabbi Kushner in his book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People, where he says, you know, we can either have a loving God who is not all-powerful, or we can have an all-powerful God who is not all-loving. But you cannot have a God who is all-powerful and all-loving at the same time. To which I say, Rabbi Kushner, you don't understand the nature and the character of God if you say that. Because our God is a loving God, a fatherly God, who is omnipotent and sovereign in all things. I find it interesting when I look at the, the Psalms. We've, we read Psalm 93 a while ago, but... <clears throat> you look at others right there, 96, that we had read this morning. You know, sing to the Lord a new song, tell of his glory among the nations and wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For, the, for great is the Lord and greatly be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. He goes on to talk about his sovereignty over all things. We're to worship him. We're to bow down before him. Let the heavens be glad and let the, let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and, let, and all it contains. But the Lord reigns on high. Or 97, which says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. goes on and talk about the, the Lord reigning in 97. Or, or 95, especially, or excuse me, 99, especially verses 1 through 5. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Cherubim, let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is exalted among the, above, uh, above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. Uh, you have uh, executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Or Psalm 103, you could look at that and see that bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. He satisfies your years with good things so that your youth was renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all 
who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. He goes on to talk about the power and the might of God. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts. You who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his. In all places of his dominion, which is everywhere. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And go on and on. It's an interesting thing that today, even in our churches, we tend to treat God's sovereignty and God's omnipotence as a matter of controversy. We want to argue about, is God all-powerful? We want to argue about, will God violate our wills? Will he overcome our wills? And we, we'll talk about that in a minute, but we want to argue about those kind of things. But in Scripture, God's sovereignty and God's omnipotence is not a matter of controversy. It's a matter of worship. You see that in the psalmist. The psalmist talks about his power and his might and his reigning and he doesn't say, now let's argue about that. He says, let's bow before him and worship him. And that's our only response. That's our only proper response to the sovereignty and the omnipotence of God. When we talk about God being almighty, does that mean that God can do all things, anything, no matter what? Can God make a circle square? And, and, and can God, you know... Uh, uh, can God create a rock so big that even he can't lift it? I mean, those are nonsensical things. God cannot do a lot of things. God cannot do what is self-contradictory. A, a rock so big that even God cannot lift it is a self-contradictory point. Uh, if he can do all things, he can do all things, but he can't create a rock so big that he can't lift it. Uh, God can't sin. Because it's not in his nature. He is holy. He is perfect. God cannot sin. So there's something God cannot do. God cannot lie. The scripture makes that clear. Satan is the father of lies and he is the liar of all the world. And yet God cannot lie. He only tells the truth. That's why his word is trustworthy. That's why his word is what we can believe and put our trust in. He cannot act in contradiction to his nature. He cannot act in some way that he is not. So while he may be wrathful, he may show godly anger, that's not the same sinful anger that you and I tend to show. It's not, a, it's not an explosive anger. It's not a capricious anger. It's an anger. It's a wrath that comes out of his hatred of sin and his absolute necessity, if you will, to deal with it in a proper way. Some will ask the question today, well, is... Is not God's power to fulfill his purposes limited by the free will of man? You know, you've heard it say, people say before, well, God can only do what we allow him to do. Well, that's totally contrary to Scripture. I mean, think about it for a minute. Just think about it logically. If we didn't even have the Scriptures, if we can limit God by what we want, if we can limit God by God only being able to do what we give him permission to do, then who is God? I mean, who's really in charge? It's us. And the, the truth of the matter is, we are not God. We are not in charge. God can do whatever he wants to do. 
And that's made clear in Scripture over and over again. Just one example, Ephesians 1.11 makes it clear that God accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. But listen to this. He does that without reducing man to a robot. We do make free and spontaneous choices. Man is a free moral agent. The, the theologians use the word free agency rather than free will. We do make decisions. We act according to our desires. We act according to what we want. But somehow God works his purpose out in all of that so that he doesn't, he doesn't keep us from making choices. He doesn't even make choices for us. But he leads us and uses our choices to bring about his purpose. You know, I, I tell people all the time, you know, uh, I had somebody the other day, or the other day, it was a couple of months ago, they said, they said, you know, I just, I just believe God will never violate anybody's will to save them. I said, okay, that's, that's good. I said, well, what are you doing? What do you mean, what are you doing? I said, well, are you arguing with this person every day and trying to beat them into the belief so that they'll believe? Well, heavens no. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I've witnessed to them, but, but they, uh, they're just not do it. They're not listening to me. And I said, well, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm praying for them. I said, you're what? Why are you praying for them? Well, I'm praying that God will intervene in their life and change their will so that they'll want to come to him. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You just told me that God will not do anything to violate a person's will to bring them to faith in Christ. And now you're telling me that you are praying that God will change their will? Well, yeah, I want him to I don't want him to force them into salvation, but I want him to change their will so they want to come. I said, that's fine, but you're asking God to do something to their will. You're not just leaving it up to their, quote, absolute libertarian free will. You're asking God to do something. Listen, if, if God doesn't intervene in people's lives to bring them in fa to faith by grace and by the power of his Holy Spirit, prayer is absolutely futile and ridiculous toward the lost. I mean, I pray for the lost every day because I pray God will change their minds. God will intervene and change their will. God will intervene and bring them to faith in Christ. If left to our own devices, without God intervening in any way, we will always, we will always reject him because our sin is so great. Our idols are so great. And we'd much rather serve our idols. Many times our idol being the idol of ourself. But understand he does this. He doesn't make us robots. He doesn't, he doesn't put us on a puppet string and cause us to dance around like a puppet. He's working his purposes in this world. And he will bring about, he will bring about his intended purposes ultimately. And you know, I, I tell people all the time, they say, well, you mean to tell me that if, if God's going to save somebody and, and I'm not going to, I refuse to go witness to them, that, that uh, what will that, should I not go witness to them? I said, sure, you should go witness to them. Well, what if I don't? Well, then somebody else will. You'll miss the blessing and you'll prove yourself to be a disobedient child if you are indeed a child in listening, but, but God will accomplish his purpose in the lives of the people in every respect. I mean, the scripture makes that so abundantly clear. I don't have time to go into all of it tonight, but God is an almighty God. Others make this suggestion. Does not the existence of evil 
suggests that God is not almighty after all. I mean, that's Rabbi Kushner's argument in why bad things happen to good people, which again, there are no good people, so it's a, it's a nonsensical title of a book. But, but, you know, if God is really almighty, why doesn't he obliterate sin? Why doesn't he obliterate evil? Why, why is there evil in the world if God is indeed almighty? It looks to me like evil just really proves and that God is not almighty after all. Absolutely not. You know, God is obliterating evil. I can prove it by a bunch of folks sitting in here tonight. God has taken sinful, rebellious people and changed them into people that are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Not perfect people, but people who have been changed by his grace and by his power. Now, the fact that perhaps God is moving a bit more slowly in removing evil than we want him to do is not the issue. You can be sure that his purpose is, is to rescue more from evil in the long run. God is doing his work. And, and just because we think he's doing it too slowly doesn't say anything about his almightiness. He is an almighty God doing his work. Again, if I could quote Packer, I like what he says about this. Uh, he says, and this is a very lengthy quote, but listen, and we'll bring it to an end here. The truth of God's almightiness in creation, providence, and grace is the basis of all our trust, peace, and joy in God and the safeguard of all our hopes of answered prayer, present protection, and final salvation. It means that neither fate, nor the stars, nor blind chance, nor man's folly, nor Satan's malice controls this world. Instead, a morally perfect God runs it, and none can dethrone him or thwart his purposes of love. I love that statement. We're not governed by fate or by the stars. We're not governed by our horoscopes. Thank God. And I hope you don't even give that any kind of credence by reading it every day. It's, that's a, you know, why people will believe that, they can be, that their life can be controlled by the stars, but they certainly don't want a loving, sovereign, fatherly God controlling their life is beyond me. That's the ultimate of foolishness. You know, I've got to follow the stars. Well, I'd rather follow God. I'd rather God controlling my life, have God controlling my life than the stars, and I believe he is. And we need to trust in him and him alone in that way. Augustus Toplady, whom we sing some of his hymns, some of them modernized, but many of them just as they are, he made this statement. He said, if I'm in Christ, then this. And this is part of the hymn. First part of verse 1, second part of verse 2. A sovereign protector I have, unseen yet forever at hand, unchangeably faithful to save, Almighty to rule and command. If you are my shield and my sun, the night is no darkness to me, and fast as my moments roll on, they bring me but nearer to thee. You know, that's what Almighty means. That he is ruling and he is reigning and he is bringing us closer and closer to him. We Many of you were in here just this past Friday when we uh, 
celebrated the homegoing of, of Debbie Stagg. And we, we stood here and talked about the fact that she was now nearer to her God than she ever has been. And, and she had a strong walk with the Lord. A very strong walk with the Lord. She loved God. She, she was being molded by his presence every day. And she reflected Christ in so many ways. But as God worked in her life, even through tragic sickness, as he worked in her life through ways that, that we look at and say, well, why did God let that happen? I don't know. And I ask why a lot more than Debbie did. Because in the midst of all that, she never lost her hope. She never lost her focus. She never lost the reality that her God reigns. The last word she spoke to me that I remember, because the, the two weeks she was in the hospital, she never spoke, at least not to me. But the last words I remember was, Pastor, I don't think I'm going to make it this time. But that's all right. Because I know my God's in control of all of this. Now that's understanding. That's saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Not God the Father, the domesticated one. There's a book that was written a year or so ago, and I'll close with this. I read it two or three years ago. To be honest with you, I probably couldn't tell you five things that are in it right now. But I remember the title. Your God is too safe. Your God is too safe. And if your God is too safe, I don't mean it doesn't give you security. It does. Because he's not safe, he is, it gives us security and strength. But if your God is too safe, that is, he's just your buddy, then you're not worshiping the true and the living God of Scripture. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And next week, we're going to talk about the maker of heaven and earth. Why is that important? Hadn't science proved that God didn't create the heaven and the earth, that it all just kind of, and was there? Well, we'll talk about that. Let's pray. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Mm, what great words. What powerful words. What words that if we believe you, O oh Lord, in that manner, will change our lives radically. We will walk with a God who reigns. And we will acknowledge that not giving you permission to reign. That's like us telling a tornado to stop. Or telling a tornado they got permission to destroy the house in front of them. But we will acknowledge that. And we will seek to have our lives so molded and so shaped by that that that's all it means. That's, that's all that will matter until the day we die. Thank you, Father. For we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.